Welcome back, everyone. It's another episode of the Ramos Law Difference Makers podcast, where I, Dr. Jim Hoven, your host, gets a chance to meet with cool people every single week doing cool things. And today is an absolute pleasure for me. It's a chance that I get to visit with an awesome new friend to our firm and to me personally. And this guy is a up and coming attorney. He's gonna give us his story today. We're gonna hear about his thoughts. We're gonna hear a lot about what he does for clients. It's with great pleasure that I welcome to the show, Mr. Marco, Mr. Marco Donatelli. Marco, welcome, welcome to the show. Dr. Hoven, thank you so much. I'm a huge fan of, of everything that you do. Oh, well, here we go. This is gonna be a great show. <laughs> hey, listen, um, as we get started, I think it's important for people to understand you are newer here to our firm. And so um, we've had just such great experiences, you and I have in the couple of months that you've been with us and just the time to be together, that hearing your energy and your story is why I really wanted you to be a guest on the show. And so as we go, before we wade too deep into that, tell us a little bit about yourself specifically, um, kind of where you're from, your background, and what made you decide to want to be an attorney? Absolutely. Well, I'm from Long Island, New York, originally, born and raised, um, came from, you know, uh, a nice family there, grew up sailing on Long Island Sound and, and hiking and stuff like that. Um, but really, I'd say a turning point in my life, it was sort of the end of high school, right before college. And that's when I kind of um, got more ambitious in my life. I started reading a lot more. Was there a turn, um, was there something, that, a, a event that stimulated that, Marco? Like did something happen one way or another that makes you go, man, I gotta start looking at life from a different way or different perspective, or was it an evolution that just naturally occurred? Interesting question. It, it was kind of a before and after sort of thing. I don't know if there was any specific impetus, but at that point, I remember I've, I have one distinct memory um, and it can it can range it ranged through everything, whether it was athletics or something like that, but in which I really started goal setting a lot more. And so specifically, I remember in high school, I, I didn't have a specific sport. That was my sport. And I decided that I wanted to start playing and get really good at the sport of lacrosse, just kind of out of the blue. I don't I can't remember why, but um, you know, from there I started practicing every single day after school, every single day playing wall ball. And, and stuff were you like in that. high school already at this time? Yes. That's not an easy feat. Just so people have context, um, our youngest son Connor played lacrosse and he didn't pick it up until going into ninth grade. And New York is a hotbed for lacrosse, right? Like that's, that's, that's right. A, a rock star center for lacrosse. So, you know, he had to really figure out to be able to play at that level, I mean, we had to do not only camps, but we had to do ground training stuff with mobility stuff because he was behind because he hadn't played since he was seven. So That's now right. take that to your story. So now you decide to play lacrosse. Talk about that journey and, and what that was all about. Absolutely. Just like you said, it's one of those sports that's very organically grown. People start playing it when they're six years old or something like that. But I decided that I wanted to do it. And so you set your mind to something and, um, you know, I practiced every day. I think that I've, you know, practiced harder than other people. And I'm proud to say that, you know, from there, I then made the varsity team and stuff like that. So although, you know, such a, such a small and maybe inconsequential thing in my life, you know, it, it really held very big personal significance. It showed me that with hard work, you really can do most things. That's cool. Yeah. And so you start finding out that setting goals is something good for you um, and that you're, you're understanding it. 
is that where the attorney interest came in of I'm setting a goal for a career or did that kind of mature over time as well? Yeah, that matured over time. And that was a confluence of a couple different things. Number one, definitely, I, I you know, it's a tenet of myself. I, I always try to be the best version of myself. Absolutely. Um, and so around that time, I started reading a lot, too. I started I, I read anything that I could pick up, you know, put my hands on in a certain genre or just across the board, just grabbing books and reading, spanning all sorts of genres. Um, I got a lot of um, uh, kind of role models around this time. I read a lot about Winston Churchill and what a great man he was and, and FDR. World War II also fascinates me that entire period. But um, just great men of all times. Abraham Lincoln, of course, and, and um, you know, Julius Caesar and so many others, Marcus Aurelius. Um, so definitely a lot in the biography category but then too a lot of fiction stuff like that i think that john steinbeck is is you know just an incredible writer and and uh you know you also discover the experience it's so cool you you have a thought or a feeling and then to see a writer articulate you know something that that you couldn't articulate yourself you know that's and wow it's so beautifully written there on a page isn't that powerful i know that there we've kind of gotten away in a sense from words and it seems like we're now into far more video number one audio number two and words number three where you have booksellers going out of business but still plenty of books being written and sold right on amazon and this kind of thing but someone who in my mind i love to read and i notice that even as much as i love to read i'm listening to more podcasts than i'm reading more than pages i'm reading right now because it's just so much more convenient Mm -hmm. but when someone can paint a picture or tell a story with a written word, it is beautiful when you can see their heart and how they look at the world or they relate a concept that's so profound to you or I. It's amazing to me when it can be done in the written word. Is that still something that you're into is lots of different reading or have you also changed in how you consume content at this point? Of course I have. Just out of convenience, that's that's our modern lifestyle. But I couldn't agree more that there's something special about reading. There's something, there's something um, um, I wouldn't say primal, but very innate in us that you read something and it can it can evoke such emotion. There's something about it. You know, you can you can dig through a book and, and get into it like it's like, you know, an earthworm in dirt or something like that and, and feel the story when it's yes. really beautiful. Yes. Yeah. You know, I one of the ways that I read content and I noticed this the other day, I was sitting doing some therapy uh, some at one of our medical clinics at FitMD. And so I was getting some therapy done. And so it's the, this electrical therapy. So it's not good to have your phone or computer because the, mm-hmm. you know, it can kind of mess up screens. So I have nothing to do but read. And I, I'd gotten on the device and I did not have a book because I usually have at least one book that I'm reading. Currently I'm reading a couple books, but usually I have at least one and I didn't have it with me. So there we keep next to this machine, we keep, um, we keep magazines because mm. the treatments are about 30 minutes long or this and that. So I'm looking through this magazine, thumbing through it. And it's like the magazine is, is called like Allure or something. Like mm. it's a female magazine. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh man, what am I going to be reading <laughs> in here? And it turns out that there's this story on Elon Musk in there. And as I'm reading, so I'm like, oh yeah, I, I'm a big Elon Musk fan for the most part and mm-hmm. what he's trying to do to, to help change the world and make it better for generations. Mm-hmm. So I start reading this and it's a long magazine article and it was painting the picture that you and I were just talking about where I could really get in touch with it. And you know what I found, which was interesting? 
long magazine articles now are harder for me to read than books. Like books, I'm reading them and I take a highlighter and I highlight the piece that I wanna pay attention to. And then when I go back to the book the next time, I just read my highlights. Not that there's not <laughs> lots of good stuff, but then I can really motor through a book to what I thought was important around one right. until such time as I wanna read the whole thing again. But magazines are different. And when I see like a five page, real tiny print magazine article, I was getting lost in and I and I thought to myself, yeah. Mark, I'm like, am I getting lazy in in my approach to this because I do listen to so much podcast content now? Or is it that now the words, the story being told, they're trying to get so much into so little of a time. Right. Is there something there? It's right. interesting. Do you find any of that kind of stuff with as you're consuming content that you're doing it and seeing it differently in, in how you approach it? It's fascinating because it's it's the mental commitment that you put to something, right? And let's say that you have a book in front of you that's an absolute tome of a book, right? It's 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 a thick book. Uh, that in and of itself nowadays will scare off so many people. But you know what? Reading is so much about the journey that the yes. author takes you on, and it shouldn't be it shouldn't be a labored journey or or you know have have so many twists and turns. But you know, of course, you arrive at at those those little snippets that you want to keep, and you can go back. But you know what? You remember the feeling that that gave you the first time that you read it yes. and said, wow. And you can dive right back into that feeling. So that's something really nice. Um, you know, and so much about writing, and this is a great interest of mine, of, of cadence and of um, in, in writing, it's really very psychological, very psychologically manipulative, particularly in the English language. There are Saxon words and Latinate words, and they speak to different parts of us, whether to kind of a visceral gut feeling that we feel, or if they're more um, um, cerebral and intellectual. And there's different ways that a skilled author can wield these words and use them in different sentences to evoke different feelings. Are and you so, a writer as well? Do you enjoy writing, or is it more appreciating the art of good writing from another uh, another person's pen? Right now it's appreciation, but I'd say that I aspire mm -hmm. to write one day. And it certainly um, instructs my legal writing a bit, yes. which a law school would not recommend. They say everything should be very, very, you know, bleached and very, very straightforward. And uh, don't worry about, you know, readership or anything like that. But I don't find that's the case at all. I think that everything that you do is telling a story. Everything that you do. Such a great point. I happen to enjoy writing. It's something that I've been doing for a long, long time in different ways and to form. Some of it is marketing writing. Some of it is website writing. Some wrote a small book and yada, yada, yada. But I found that the practice of writing is inspired by reading. But when I read sometimes what I write, sometimes I'm like, that sounds just like me. And sometimes I'm like, where did that come from? Like, that doesn't even sound like me. And, and the thoughts are mine and the philosophy is mine. It's not like, not, not like I'm making something up that's not me, but rather the way it got expressed was foreign to me. So as you start your writing journey, man, I'm excited for you mm -hmm. because I've known for me that just the more ways that I found any way that we can express, whether it's emotionally, right, where people can feel us or whether it's in speaking and sharing our words mm -hmm. and our thoughts or in writing, the more ways we have to communicate, the more effective a communicator we can be. If we're yes. really tied into just one mode of communication, when we get outside of that, 
some of those same, same beautiful thoughts and words and philosophies that we have, we have a more difficult time. So honing those other abilities, if you have an interest and a natural skill set for them, mm-hmm. it, it becomes really, really important. So I'm, I'm really glad to see that you're gonna, you know, that you're fostering that. Cause I know you use it every day in your, you know, in your professional side. Absolutely, absolutely. And there's there's great value in expressive writing. To, to sit there, you know, and whether you write something that then maybe it doesn't flow or something like that, but there's still, there's incredible exploratory value there. Have you journaled? Yes, yes, I try to all the time. Yes, I've know. gone through stages of journaling over the last 30 years where sometimes I'm really good, sometimes I'm really deep, sometimes I don't do it at all, but I found that it is a, a good expression. Tell me about your journaling uh, process. What do you, is it just sketching stuff out, quick stuff, or do you go deep thought when you, when you express and why do you journal? Mm-hmm. It's incredible expression. Sometimes, sometimes I need to, you know? Sometimes you feel something and, and it's, it's like talking to yourself. Um, and, I don't know. It's it's an incredible expressive exercise. The thing is, of course, then you suffer from a bias there because then I only really journal when when I'm feeling something that needs to be let out. And mm-hmm. so you look back. It's wonderful to look back and and oh, I was dealing with with this issue at that time, and wow, you know, huh? That that did resolve or whatever it is, um, and, and to track your progress over time but it's just a wonderful tool that we have in our arsenal and I'd recommend it to anyone. I, I agree and you've inspired me. I wanna get back on it because I've been off it for a little bit. Um, I, like I said, I generally go in and out of the process and I wanna tie in journaling with goals because a lot of people will journal and me included, I'll journal my thoughts but then I'll journal activities and I think journaling is a multifaceted exercise. I think if you do your calendar right, that is part of your journal. In fact. Uh, whether you look at some mm. of Darren Hardy stuff or John Maxwell stuff, some of Jim Rohn stuff, they all talk about putting on your calendar notes of every meeting that you went to. So I carry around a notebook and mm. every meeting that I go to, I just write the notes to it. And then my intended plan is to go back through those notes. If there's an action item, I put a highlight on it, mm. a yellow highlight to be specific. And then when I accomplish that thing, so now I can just look through like the highlights in the books I read. Now yeah. I look through my my daily journal, if you will. And when I see yellow highlights, I'm like, oh, that's my action plan. So once I do it, then I go blue over yellow. Now I know that it's done. But that still is a type of almost process goal setting as opposed to outcome goals. And and the difference for me in that process goals are the things we control every day, right? Like I'm going to get uh, 25 minutes of cardio done every single day. I'm going to uh, tell three people I love them today. Like those are all process goals that hmm. we can control that if I want my relationships and my health to get better, those two things will lead to the outcome goal that I want in a week, a month, a year, you know, whatever. I'd, I'm interested to know because goals started for you at an early age mm-hmm. where you became cognizant of them. It, do you have a goal setting process that you use right now? I do, I do. Pretty much everything for me boils down to, to some kind of checklist call this client, um, reach out to this person, something like that. But I'd like to go back for, for one second, if that's okay, regarding the journaling process, because something that you touched on that's so important is that positive reinforcement that you get from, from looking back and from tracking your progress. I think that is so incredibly important. And 
um, something that I'm focusing on in my life quite a bit right now. You know, I'm, as you said, I'm a young attorney, right? Um, and at this point, you start looking over the broader view of life, right? You've been saying, say like pursuing a lot of process goals, right? Like, uh, for me, it's, it's playing guitar a certain amount of time a night, um, learning how to cook a new dish or something like that. Um, but it's, it's so important to, to zoom out, Mm -hmm. right. And to look at your progress over time. And so going back to journaling for a second, when then you look a year or two before and you see where you were in terms of, in terms of, um, being a person and your open heartedness, right. Or your career goals or your athletic goals or something like that. I think that it's it's so important to appreciate that progress. It, I agree, and yeah. most of us, me included, I get really, really bad at going back and reviewing. I just my nature is forward, forward, right. forward, forward. Right. But the what do they say about history? You know, those who pay attention to history are not doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Or uh, if you flip that around, which is the way that I like to do, see the good stuff in history so you can repeat it or see the things that you don't want to do from history. And our journaling history is who we've been. And it's really simple fact that everything in our lives that we have now, that we have control over at least, is the result of the way that we've thought, felt, and acted in the years before this. Right. Right. So you thought, felt, and acted a certain way five, six, seven years ago that allowed you to be sitting where you are today as an attorney in our firm, helping patients doing your thing. And the same way with our fitness and our relationships and our bank accounts, the thoughts, actions, or feelings that we took however many months or years ago. Now here they are expressing themselves. Right. Are you seeing that as, I mean, you know, you're mid twenties. Are are you seeing that um, consciously at this point in your life where you can relate to that stuff? Or are you still in the mode of, man, I'm just tearing things up. Like, because I'm in my mid fifties, you're in your mid twenties. And so that perspective is valuable to me. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's developing now that, that broader view, right? Because it's truly, and, and you accept it as a given that people are going to learn from mistakes in their life and improve on things that they can. But I wouldn't say that's the case for, for a lot of people. Um, and I think that's a very special thing to, to try to try to improve yourself and change based on say past mistakes or something mm-hmm. like that, you know, because you can do the same routine and make the same mistakes over and over again. Um, change is hard. It is change hard. is always very hard. Change of habits, you know, myself and, and you've met my wonderful significant other, Anna, we talk about diet all the time and fundamental changes in someone's diet for long-term health. That is extremely difficult to wrap your head around, you know, say for, for kind of our parents' generation where they were raised on, you know, Wonder Bread, a lot of TV dinners, stuff like that. Um, you know, half a bucket of Haagen-Dazs a night, something like right. that. To change those habits fundamentally is... It's a big commitment. Yeah. It's as Jim Rohn would say, it's simple, but it's not easy. (laughs) Simple, (laughs) but not easy. I was watching a documentary with my wife last night 
And this got brought this brought to my attention from something that you just said, Marco, and I want to kind of delve into on how and it's in this form of habits, right? We are there's a book called The Greatest Salesman in the World by Og Mandino, written back, I think, in the 50s. Wonderful book, easy book to read and just incredible book. But one of the big components of that book is saying we are all slaves to our habits, mm -hmm. each and every one of us. So the only question is, what habits do you want to be a slave to? Those that are taking to you to the life that you would wish to create or those that are taking you away from that life. And that was profound for me. And I, I first read that book 15 years ago or more probably. And it's fascinating to me watching this documentary that we have it so good here in the United States and, and many other countries too. But we were watching this show about India and the, specifically it's a piece on the um, exploitation of children for, in the workforce in India. And not because they want to, it's because they have to, right? You got kids six, seven, eight years old in a workforce, workforce being quotation marks and loosely assigned here, but there's these little kids walking on piles of trash in bare feet to pick through trash to find little plastic forks or bottled caps that wow. then they then take to a recycling center and someone pays them a pittance for because they are having to help buy food for their family right. and they never know anything else. Kids that live, I'm not even kidding you, five feet from a railroad track where the train goes by every 10 minutes, yeah. 24 hours a day. And they've lived there for, the, the parents of these kids have lived there for over 20 years. And those kind of habits, those cycles are hard to break. And what we have the opportunity, so many of us watching or listening to the show, we have the chance and the choice to decide where we want to go. And I think yeah. that's an incredible blessing that so many of us take for granted that was just really reminded, I mean, it hit me in the face last night where these kids have choices, but they don't even know they have choices. They're so wrapped in squalor and in generations of people doing things the way they've always done it in what you and I would consider horrific conditions. UNICEF tries to go down there and help out how they can, but it's just mm -hmm. like, you know, throwing one starfish into the ocean when there's a whole beach of them. You, you save as many as you can, yeah. but that beach is still littered, right? And yeah. so, man, it's powerful to me. Um, how do you see, from that perspective, how do you see the blessings that we have as specifically Americans living in this date and time? It's an incredible privilege to be able to work on ourselves and 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 devote ourselves to to being the best version of ourselves that we can um it's almost like a maslow's hierarchy of needs that's what occurs to me as you talk about that and for know? those that don't know maslow's hierarchy of needs says you can't ascend the ladder of being more fully let's just say a uh, enlightened human that's not the right term self-actualized self yeah. human until you have the basic needs met, right? Food, shelter, like that late raises you up the pyramid to once those basic needs are met, now you can more actualize. So so right. carry on. Right, no, you think back even to a generation or two before, you know, um, where say um, a lot of our parents maybe had more physical jobs or something like that. And, you know, they weren't really concerned about getting enough fiber or taking their supplements or something like that, so you know? Um, things, were, things were a lot more, um, um, I don't know, how would you Just say? Just fundamental, fundamental, basics. Yes, yeah. well put. 
Yeah. Yeah. So um, let's transition a little bit into your work now, because I wanted people to hear the philosophical side of you, because mm. for a guy in your 20s, I'm telling you, you and I have had enough <laughs> conversations to know that I know that you care about that side. And I wanted to express that. We can certainly circle back around into mm-hmm. that. But how, when you decided to go to law school, was there a turning point that made you say, I want to be a, a lawyer, I want to be an attorney? What caused that? And how did this philosophy, or maybe you've developed it since law school? Because I got my deep philosophy side or my caring for philosophy after I graduated from chiropractic school. Before that, it was just, I wanted to be a chiropractor and then I had to finish. Right, I just had to put all my attention to getting through that. Wow. Had no idea of anything else about philosophy and personal growth and development until I, after I graduated, and was exposed to it. Tell me about that journey for you. Yeah, the practice of law, I think, is a wonderful thing. And I don't know if you'd hear this from from every attorney, but I, I truly believe that it's a wonderful thing because number one, it combines that you know deep love of philosophy. I mean, there's reasons why things are set up the way that they are in our society, at least fundamentally. Whether it's whether it's uh, punitive and and trying to get people to avoid certain behavior, or it's compensatory. Um, you know, I, I think that the legal system is one of the greatest parts about our society. You know, and I intend when I'm up in front of a jury, probably one of the first things that I'm going to say, because there's such bias, right, against against someone bringing a lawsuit in our country today. But what was the alternative to bringing a lawsuit when you were wronged civilly? What was the alternative? Say, say, you know, in Italy, a uh, couple hundred years ago. Um, you know, my ancestors before they came over here was you gather up a bunch of your cousins and and maybe you're stronger than the guy that wronged you. And maybe maybe you can, you know, punch the money out of them or something like that. We don't live in that society today. Right. You can't. There's no self recourse. Um, so that's, you know, and then I'd say to a jury, that's why we're here standing in front of you asking for the only, you know, um, recourse that we can. Um, so so as, as you. So that's a great way to come at that process. Tell me how you came to want to be an attorney in the first place. Was there a pivotal moment where that was the career choice? Like for me, I got hurt playing football, mm-hmm. hurt my neck, ended up at a chiropractor. That's how I knew I wanted to be a chiropractor because it helped me so much. No drugs, no surgery. It was amazing. What was your um, I want to be an attorney experience or was there one? Sure. Probably my introduction to it was my father um, who I I is. I love so much and I, I respect him so much. Both of my parents, my, my dad's an attorney and seeing um, he was a man of the community. He was on this board for residents for a more beautiful Port Washington in which I saw him fight for more sidewalk space, better pedestrian access, more trees around the community, this and that, um, and really influenced the laws, even when it you know gained him public ire or whatever it was. And, um, so he was really an incredible role model for us. Every dinner conversation, you know, was was often delved into philosophy of, of you know, why things are the way that they are and stuff like that. He taught us to question everything. And so, and there were many summers of me working in his law office and stuff like that. So, so you were groomed, essentially. <laughs> uh, no, no, I wouldn't say that. I... I wouldn't say that because I could have done whatever I wanted to in my life, but the law spoke to me too okay, yeah. because I want to help. That's, that's really what it boils down to. I guess I'm saying it in a, in a circumventing way, but helping people. That's why 
I do what I do, and that's why this firm does what it does, and that's why I think I jive so well here, because uh, it all boils down to helping people. The legal process can be, as you know, so labyrinthine, right? It's set up in a way to be inaccessible often to people, and we are guides. We are, you know, it's it's, you know, here's a pothole, here's a pothole that you don't want to fall into, and we can guide people through that and just get them to a just outcome. So with your dad being an attorney and one who was really active in his community, is there anything that you saw that you learned, I want to do it a different way in the expression of yourself as a human? For example, my kids, I love my kids. I'm very connected to them. And all of them say, dad, you know, be careful how much you work. You know, we think that you work too much. And Mm -hmm. so they're taking cues from what I do as they go into their lives, working at whatever levels in their jobs and their things. And they've seen my example and they, uh, they're they taking it and applying it to their life. Did you see anything from your folks' examples, specifically your father, since you went into the same line of work that you're like, man, I, I just want to do it a little bit different for either work-life balance or things like that? Or is it pretty much, no, he showed me the, the way that I want to go. Wow, excellent question. Um, and that brings to mind something that I once heard. And well, let me start by saying, of course, you know, and and when you see your parents and how they do things, you can think of a million things that that you would want to do better, right? And that and you say, when I'm a parent, I will change ABC. I will do this. I'm never going to ground me from gum at <laughs> night in the bed to get on the pillowcase. Exactly, whatever it is. Um, but in as the saying goes, in, in doing so, in trying to correct for what your parents did for you, you will make your own mistakes as a parent. So of course there's things that I would do differently. Um, and, and I'm in a very different situation as my father. Um, but he instilled strong principles in me. And really, you know, as you grow up, as you get further from home, here I am now in Colorado and I grew up in New York, right? Um, it's your principles that you hold to, um, and, and that's who you are. Um, and they instilled that in me. That is so beautiful. Yeah. So now let's talk about your work here. When you are, you get assigned a case, someone has typically been injured through no fault of their own. They're struggling. They don't know what to do. What's your approach as an attorney? As And I love the term that you use, that it's labyrinthine. I've never even heard labyrinth used in that term, but it's labyrinthine, and which means that there's all these ways that things can yep. go and often do go, and they need a guide. How, how do you approach that process of that first connecting with the client and helping them understand what it is they're about to go through in the role that you play? Absolutely. Um, honestly, I would say it's the same thing as any conversation in life, except with legal expertise in that it boils down to understanding and empathy. So what's the most important thing is the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes, right? They just suffered a car crash. Maybe, you know, their young daughter was in the backseat or something like that. Are you going to meet them on their level? Are you going to be the help that they need? And, um, and rep your, represent yourself as the guide that they need at that moment. You know, you need to be strong for them. You need to tell them what's ahead. And um, it's a lot of comforting too. So you're, you're actually playing a role of not only 
an administrator and a technical person, you're part of the emotional support team for these people. 100%. 100%. And my dad always taught me that being a lawyer is, you know, 70% being a therapist, something like that. Now, of course, you need the expertise. That is a huge part of it. But uh, people will always and primarily remember the way that you made them feel. Yes, that is always. so true. In every in every encounter, right? Like yes. even in the personal encounters, it's how did you make you feel? There's some people, right. and you're one of those people, by the way, I hope you continue yeah. to hone this skill that when you're talking to someone, they know that you're engaged, mm-hmm. right? You and I have had several conversations and, and I always leave when whenever our conversation ends and we go our separate ways, I'm like, that was a good use of time because we were talking about real things and we were really engaged with yes. each other. The thing that we've referred to that, I, I mean, I talk to our team here all the time about the bank account of trust and love. And basically every relationship from my estimation has a balance in it. And so you and I have in this conversation right now, we're both putting deposits into that account, right? And so there's gonna come a time in our relationship, maybe you have to tell me something tough, like, hey Jim, this and this and this, and I'm gonna be like, wow. But I know because of the balance, the deposits that you put in, the balance is really high. So when you tell me, I know you're telling me because you care for me and you want what's best. So it's just a withdrawal. But if we, A, don't put deposits into our relationships, personal, work, uh, intimate, whatever, wow. that, and that balance is low, then when you have something, now all of a sudden you can withdraw all that's in there and that relationship can explode or go away. Yeah. And so what I hear you saying in the even the attorney-client relationship you got to put those deposits in, yes. right? How do you go about doing that? So you're there as they're, you know, you talked about some therapist type, like listening and being there for them and the, the technical side. Other ways that you feel as an attorney in your experience that you help put deposits into that bank account of trust and love with our clients? Absolutely. I mean, you need to always be active on the case. It should never just be sitting there doing nothing. And you need to convey that to the client. Constant communication is so important, you know, and here's, here's something going back to my dad, you know, he had a small town firm, right, with a few clients, helped with a few things. And so a client could pick up the phone and call, you know, get him on the line, usually and, and figure out what's going on, you know, and saw his diligence, and stuff like that. And that is so important in the relationship, not to be inaccessible, not to have firewalls between you. Um, so that, and then also building up the personal connection is very important too. you know, ask how they're doing, ask about what's going on in their life. Those are, those are the best clients. And so, so often, um, in the legal field, it being labyrinthine, you need to deliver news. Okay. Well, they're denying our claim or this has happened in your case. And at that moment, you then have that, that line of credit established that they know that it's that that you're out there fighting for them they know that and that is that is the most important thing and so basically like even if you we know in our in our world in our business it's not always great news there's sometimes some tough news that we have to give right and the fact that we've laid that foundation that they know that we got their back we we're taking care of them as best we can it helps also that hard truth that sometimes none of us wants to hear it makes it better it makes it easier as, okay, I know that they did everything they could. Have you found that that open communication is critical in what you're doing as well? Critical. Absolutely yeah. critical. I mean, no one comes to an attorney or often a doctor on their best day. You know, no one comes there when everything's going right. 
it's because there's an issue or sometimes a problem that they need help with. And so it's also interesting because you see people and you meet them for the first time often at that point and moment of their lives. And so you have to connect with them on a, in a very real way pretty quickly and establish that trust quickly. Um, and, you know, I'm a huge believer that, that everyone is, is good or has a kernel of goodness in them. Um, and so you need to, to find that in people and, and um, you know, help bring it out. Nurture that. Yes. Foster well and grow it. I love it. You're a farmer too then. <laughs> yeah, right? That's right. That's right. It ain't much, but it's honest work. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Man, that is so good. Tell our audience something that surprises you about your about your job. It could be something that surprises you about clients and their interactions, or it could be something that surprises you about the um we're going to, we won't call it the adversary because insurance companies aren't always the adversary, but it's right. who you, it's who you're negotiating with and, and you're advocating on behalf of the client with the insurance company. Is there anything that you're like, man, this is surprising or people may not know about those kinds of things that happen behind the scenes. Hmm. Something that's surprising. Um, You know, I'd go back again to that same point, the fact that everyone, pretty much every client that I've talked to, everyone that I've met has, I would really put it as, as honest people, good people. I mean, that has really reaffirmed mm -hmm. my belief in that, you know, um, particularly because, and I, you know what, I think this is an important point to emphasize because so often plaintiff's work, plaintiff's personal injury work gets a bad rep. Yeah, me and you know. explain plaintiff's personal injury because people may not know that term. Sure. So this is the side in a civil suit that's bringing the lawsuit. The um, person injured in our case. Right. Something has happened to them. They are a victim of some sort, and now they are they are bringing a suit against someone. And so you know, of course, after that famous McDonald's coffee cup case that everyone knows about, because corporations love to shout it from every rooftop that they could to discourage people. It's called tort reform idea of tort reform uh, to discourage people um, from bringing lawsuits and to paint every plaintiff that brings a lawsuit as greedy as out for money as ambulance chasers as as not as bringing a frivolous claim against this poor corporation that's trying to serve coffee right I mean coffee that's too hot everyone likes hot coffee something like that <laughs> but then say say that case specifically you look into the facts of that case and you find that McDonald's had hundreds of verified complaints of people with third degree burns. Um, they routinely left their coffee 20 degrees above the industry standard. And so it was way too hot. And it was this lady that, you know, um, the person, the, the employee did not put the lid on right. And so she has it, she has the cup and it spills all over her and she got third degree burns all over her legs. I mean, her medical expenses were astronomical. Um, and so a jury of peers of ordinary people came in and said that she deserved money and that McDonald's deserved to be punished for its behavior and failing to rectify this after hundreds of documented incidents. Right. And uh, they took you know, McDonald's and a bunch of other corporations, they took that verdict and waved it around like a flag. Look, look at all these, at all these greedy people. Money grubbers. Right, right. So let me bring this point home. Um, 
plaintiff's personal injury work now often carries that tag, right? One important question that we ask people picking a jury is, are there too many frivolous lawsuits nowadays? Something like that. To go back to the point of what surprises me is that all of my clients just just want justice. They just want things to be back to normal. I mean, you talk about an injury that someone suffers, say it's a fractured wrist or something like that. The answer that we have for that is money. But there isn't a single person that wouldn't trade that money for getting back their functionality in their wrist or having it not happen. Have, you know, going back in time and not having their young daughter in the backseat of the car something like that. They wouldn't trade all the money in the world for that. Boy, that is so good. And, and it is surprising to me too, Marco, that you have people that just want to do their best. And I think if I were asking myself that question, one of the things that would surprise me, and it didn't hit me until what you just said with the young girl in the back, it surprises me from the insurance industry side, why, and, and I know the answer, but why they don't want their clients more taken care of, meaning they don't push for people to have adequate insurance coverage. That surprised me right. when I moved from the medical, you know, chiropractic side into the legal side and you start talking to your insurance folks and they're like, yeah, we, you know, if people have more policies, that's great. But, mm. and some people even went so far to say is the people above them as insurance agents were saying, eh, you shouldn't necessarily mm. get a lot of underinsured motorist coverage, a lot of med pay coverage, you know, just get the basic minimums. Like yeah. I, I, the surprise to me is that we haven't done a better job in this industry, whether it's from whatever side of letting people know you need to cover yourself. You need to have coverage because you can't guarantee that the other person's gonna have enough coverage that if they cause you damage, that it's gonna, that it's gonna take care of your needs. Cause we all know hospital and medical costs up, right? Never down. So if someone goes to a hospital and ambulance and has to have a CT and an MRI for their injuries, and the other person was only driving around with $25,000 in coverage, mm -hmm. it's gone. That's right. And that's no treatment, bill. Right? That's right? And so I would say that would a surprise to me. Have you seen, have you seen in your experience with folks um, this same kind of trend where they're, they're just not educated on it? Because they think just like, you know, plaintiff's attorneys get a bad rap, insurance people can get a bad rap too, where, <laughs> oh man, they're just trying to pay for their kid's education. They're just trying to upsell me stuff. If they do try to upsell you on stuff for your own good, then it's seen as bad, but then they're also pinned some of the insurance agents right in the middle because then their people above them don't right. want them selling that. What are you seeing that from that perspective? It's a whole incentive structure. There, there's a lot to unpack in that. It's a yeah. whole incentive structure. And so when you go and you see a trial of, of a plaintiff's law firm versus an insurance company, it's often a fight of the prejudices. That's how I put it, right? You have a plaintiff's attorney on one side. Great. <laughs> That's how the public sees it. Then on the other side, you have an insurance company, right? Which mandatory pay-in system, and they make so much money that every single one of them can have a football stadium or something <laughs> like that. You know, that's how I see it. Um, but going back to your point, what's fascinating and terrifying basic education about the insurance structure here in Colorado, most people don't even know what their coverage stands for, when they're covered, and how. And so when something bad happens, that's the first time that they're learning that maybe they're not covered for a certain thing. I, I was on a call the other day, and uh, a client said, oh, I, I have collision. 
so I have unlimited coverage. I'm good. Right. I'm good. <laughs> well, no, that doesn't apply to your injuries. That only applies to your car. And I found out that they didn't have underinsured motorist coverage. And then all of a sudden, what is that person's reaction? Uh, okay, explain the entire system to me. Um, and, and, you know, in that moment, I'm sorry, there's no additional pool of which we can recover against. And then, of course, the conversation goes, well, can't we just sue the person? that hit us. Well, you know, in all likelihood, the person that hit you, you know, maybe they were driving a 2004 Honda Civic and, you know, they're living paycheck to paycheck and stuff like that. What are we, what are we going to garner their wages or something like that? And so for, you know, all of a sudden that $40,000 hospital bill becomes very real, very, yes. very real. Yes. Yeah. You have so much passion, Marco, and we've heard it in our conversation from your philosophy your connection to your clients and your family, and now into this part of, of your daily work. Is there something that you like most about what you do? <laughs> just something that just gets you up in the morning to come to Ramos Law every single day and just grind for your people? It, it's gotta be helping people, going back to that. I mean, truly, I, I, it's, it's almost, I feel like it's a public service um, in that we're, we're just getting people what they deserve. That's really how I see it. And, uh, you know, when, when I've had that experience of putting a, a hefty check in someone's hands that has really suffered. And, of course, you know, listen, the, this money, it's not going towards a new speedboat or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's going towards, towards really their pain and suffering, or their future medical expenses or something like that. And when I'm, I'm able to do that for someone and the gratitude that they show um that's what i do it for honestly it's it's a magical moment that is magical yeah i have one more magical question for you if you were to share one piece of advice you've been given along the way that has really made a difference in who you are where you are what your life is about today or maybe it's a piece of advice not necessarily given but that you've learned that you would share with those listening or those uh, viewing what would that be interesting i would say life boils down to communication for me in that no man is an island no person excuse me is an island um and you can be a master of your craft you can have all the information in the world or something like that but it's all about your ability to communicate that um you know i i once heard something that you know you can go on on the most magical quest ever but unless you're a storyteller that can communicate that um then it falls on deaf words. And so um, communication skills is paramount. That's great. And you have excellent communication skills, by okay. the way. Thank there you. may be people who are watching and listening. And by the way, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please share it with someone, whether it's the philosophical side, whether someone has been injured or wants to know more about that whole process. Um, please share this information because, I mean, you can tell Marco is making a difference here. And, and we want to extend that out as far of a reach as we can. Um, Marco, if someone wanted to reach out to you and, and ask a question or just get to know you a little bit better, how would they go about doing that? Absolutely. Reach out to our firm. Um, they'll have all of our information. Any question, anytime. As I said, I'm happy to help. Right on. Ramoslaw.com. You can find Marco's beautiful, handsome face there <laughs> doing his thing. But Marco, this has been a, a real joy for me. Just such a great extension of other conversations that we've had. And so thanks for taking the time out of your incredibly busy schedule, helping all those clients to visit with me and with us. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Hoven. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.